Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the Stage and Screen Podcast, Episode 17, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Richard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. We're excited to be joined in a few moments by screenwriter, director, and producer Danny Bilson. Danny's latest project, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, is showing now on Netflix and is a strong Oscar contender this year for Best Picture and Best Director both. Visit our Facebook page for Greg's review of the film and uh, tune in to our YouTube channel linked in the show notes for a special episode of In The Mix dedicated to Danny's career, featuring trivia about the Five Bloods and a cocktail celebrating his other hit film, Disney's 1991 aviation adventure, The Rocketeer. Danny Bilson comes from a long line of writers, from his grandfather George, who was a producer, writer, director, and head of the trailer department at Warner Brothers, to his grandmother Hattie, who interviewed stars for fan magazines and wrote shorts for RKO. After a long television and film career at Warner Brothers, Disney, and Paramount himself, Bilson served as a senior executive in the video game industry at both Electronic Arts and THQ. Danny has experience developing properties in film, video games, TV, theme parks, and comic books. Bilson currently has a major motion picture to Five Bloods directed by Spike Lee, available for streaming on Netflix and front and center in this year's awards chatter. Danny's consulted at Walt Disney Imagineering as well as Tencent Games, where he runs the Tencent Spectrum training program for their senior producers and developers twice each year. Bilson has been on the faculty of the USC School of Cinematic Arts since 2005, where he teaches screenwriting, narrative design, and advanced game production. And Danny's chairman of the Interactive Media and Games Division and was recently appointed director of USC Games, where he leads the joint program shared by both the School of Cinematic Arts and the Viterbi School of Engineering. So while we all know you predominantly as a screenwriter, uh, this being a stage and screen podcast, we, we need to give equal time. So you, in fact, were a theater major at Cal State San Bernardino. Where did the interest in theater come from? Well, huh. I think that they had no film school there. So I went in as a history major originally. And I immediately sort of, oh, that's here's what happened. I went in as a history major. I took... In the summer after my freshman year, I got into the Screen Extras Guild and I started working as an extra on um, Happy Days, as a matter of fact. I think it was the second season of Happy Days. And I was one of the kids in Arnold's in the second season of Happy Days. You can actually see me there. And when the fall came around, I didn't go back to school. I was like, this is too much fun. I'm going to keep doing Happy Days and MASH and some other stuff I was in. And uh, when I went back to school in January after taking that quarter off, I was like, where do I go? You know, where do I sign up for? And it was only, they only had a theater department at Cal State San Bernardino. So um, that started my career in theater. And literally the first day in the theater department, I met Paul DeMeo. The first day. Wow. And that was a partnership that lasted for what, over 40 years, right? 42 years. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I have to pause for a second because he passed away and it's hard. No, that's that's fine, and that's something we don't. Uh, we no, want cool. to bring up a little just, bit, okay? Just, just that's why I slowed down for a second, you know. But yeah, let's, so that was Cal State San Bernardino Theater Department. Oh, what happened was I was accepted to UCLA Film School as a junior transfer, and I was just having too much fun in a small little theater department, kind of getting to do everything. And so Paul did lights and sound. I did props. We got paid as student assistants. And we acted in all the shows, God help them. And uh, 
we uh, had a lot of fun and it was, it was, you know, big fish, small ponds. So I stayed out there. And in the last year, Paul and I wrote a play that we did on the main stage about Sherlock Holmes and Houdini. And Paul played Sherlock Holmes and I played Houdini. And that's, uh, that's how we started. Then we took that play to LA and we almost had that thing set up with John Keelgood and Ralph Richardson at one point. And then Sir Ralph died and, and we had this Broadway producer involved and, it's a very, it's a really fun play. It's really good. But that's the first thing that Paul and I wrote, the Houdini Deception, it was called. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Is that uh, still in circulation anywhere? Can we get our hands on it? Well, you can get your hands on it if you send me an email. <laughs> I think I've got a digital copy of it. It's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's about an assassination plot against the king. Mata Hari is in it. Uh, it's Holmes and Watson are in their old age. It's pre-World War One. Wow. It's, you know, we were always doing... You know, the truth is, we were always trying to do movies. So even when we were in theater, we were trying to do movies. I remember my senior project, as a, my directing project, was I was trying to stage the Maltese Falcon. So it was, you know, we were always trying to do something cinematic, I think. Yeah, and I think Matt's probably thinking what I'm thinking is because one of the things we're looking at doing is rolling out some stage productions and some things, too, as, as a partnership beyond, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of thing. And, and that sounds like something that would be fun to do. Yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> So, Danny, as you mentioned in your bio, uh, writing's in your blood. Your father, Bruce, was a producer, writer, director, um, worked with you on The Flash in the early 90s, um, and on some of the most well-loved sitcoms, really, of all time, Hawaii Five-0, Brady Bunch, MASH, Green Acres, I just list goes on and on. Uh, Hogan's Heroes, Get Smart, uh, one of my personal favorites, The Odd Couple. So, did you have any opportunities um, in your youth to watch your father at work and spend some time with him on set? Oh, yeah. He took me to work. And I grew up on, in Mayberry, in Control and Get Smart, on the Stalag 17. Wait, was it Stalag 13 in the show? I can't remember. I think Book it's Zero, Stalag 13. Yeah. yeah, yeah, 17 is the movie. <laughs> I remember playing with Ivan Dixon's son and the prop man gave us rubber machine guns and we'd run around playing World War II and lifting up the doghouse and climbing down in a little hole underneath and stuff like that. So major influence on me absolutely he would also take me all day so i would go from like seven in the morning till seven at night and i just loved it i just loved it so a slate in front of a camera i have like memories of being like two years old and seeing that so that's like a i even knew when i was directing later on when i look at that slate sometimes i go that's like a primary image to me like some people see you know, see Dick and Jane book or whatever. But to me, that's <laughs> slate, very primary. And I remember being a little kid. I can remember things like the Dick Van Dyke set because it was at Desilu. My dad was the assistant director on the Andy Griffith show. So I remember running through those sets because those stages are all next to each other. There was a Danny Thomas show, uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. And then Andy Griffith was kind of around the corner where their stage was. They didn't have an audience, of course, like the other ones. But I still remember that stuff. No, I, have a, I had a really... Uh, my childhood heavily influenced by backlots and sets and theme parks. And this is, and James Bond movies. Like if you're talking about the things that influenced me, these are it. But being able to play on movie sets and then living with Disneyland and all that, major, major influence on my whole brain. Now, have you had a chance to watch uh, WandaVision? On, on Disney oh, Plus. Oh yeah, I love WandaVision. So love you, so you grew up around some of those sets. So how do you think they did? I mean, what did that 
bring back any oh, kind of awesome. memories. Just... I, look, I love that show. Okay. I mean, I don't love everything, but WandaVision, I think, is just great. Hats off to them. Um, and the other thing they're doing that is something I dreamed of doing in my whole, all my transmedia dreams of my life, which I've never really executed much as much on, is they're advancing the plot in important ways in a television series. They're not, they're not saying, oh, the TV show can just exist over here and don't let it mess with the movie timeline, right? The reason it works so well is because they're valuing every piece of the IP and they're giving it juice and depth and making it matter. Now, that's not why I think WandaVision is also great, because it's a great idea. It's just an imaginative, it makes sense in its own reality. It's a lot of fun. I don't know how it's planned. Like, I was seeing online, and people weren't digging the first few episodes. And I was loving it. And I thought, well, maybe you got to be a baby boomer to really love this. You know, because they just wanted the Marvel stuff. Where's the plot? Where's Thanos? Where's Endgame? Where's all that stuff? But I was like, oh, man, it's Dick Van Dyke. It's the Brady Bunch. It's what was the other one? Oh, it's Bewitched. It's uh, when they got to the more modern stuff. I don't watch. T- I stopped watching TV a long time ago. So. So, well, is that The Office? Is that Modern Family? I don't know. I never really seen. <laughs> yeah, I had the same same uh, impression because I grew up. So I grew up in the 70s. So I'm, I guess, Gen X as opposed to Baby Boomer. But um, yeah, so I grew up watching a lot of that stuff in syndication. It was really kind of a, a nostalgia kick for me. Love it, but the important thing, it just sort of being trying to say something intelligent, is that they're moving the they're moving the universe along in that peak, and that's the audience. When this is over, they're going to be right there for the next one for Winter Soldier and and Falcon because they're going to be expecting, wow, it's going to advance the universe and the story and stuff's going to matter. And if they keep doing that, I mean, I read that WandaVision is number one show in the world right now, so doesn't surprise me. Pretty cool. Yeah. So, so speaking of, of influences and, and growing up on the sets and being around your father, you also had a, a chance to learn a bit from John Milius, a writer of Apocalypse Now, as kind of a screenwriting teacher. So how did that experience help to shift your direction into or while you were looking at filmmaking and things like that? What kind of influence did he have on you? Sure. Paul and I were fans before we took that class in 1980 from John. So we knew his work. We knew The Wind and the Lion, Apocalypse Now. Can't remember. Big Wednesday was right in there, but that was a little late. It was on 79, I think. He was doing Conan when we took the class, or he was prepping. He was about to do it. And so he, it was this thing called Sherwood Oaks on Hollywood Boulevard. I swear it was like 100 bucks for eight classes. And you went in this room, and maybe there was 40 people in there and John. And he showed up every week for eight weeks. And he gave us his script, which was great. He gave us Oliver Stone's draft of Conan. I remember that. And then he gave us his draft of Apocalypse Now, his first draft, which is amazing and interesting. And he taught me two things, two of the most important things that I carry the rest of my life and I I teach my students. One is write the movie you want to see the most. That is the most empowering thing I've ever had as a writer when I'm sitting down going, what do I want to do? And I go to what John said, and it's, well, if I could go to any movie that would please me the most, what would it be? And uh, that's where Five Bloods comes from, for sure. All my stuff comes from that. All my originals come from that, for sure. And I could say our originals, my originals. That and the other thing he taught us was the writer. This is very Milius, if you know John. The writer must 
be like a samurai and practice the Bushido code because the samurai always contemplates death. So in face of death, he has no fear. Meaning every time you send out, I, I had a big spec go out last weekend. It's not going to sell. I had a meeting. They're not going to buy it. And it's like you walk out, no expectations, always expect the worst and the best comes, it comes. So those two things I took away and they were powerful and I've kept them for 40 years. And I then met John and worked with John later in later in life. And he was actually working with us, Paul and I, on a video game called Homefront that he was writing at the time that he had a stroke. We were about to go do PR and he lost his ability to speak really well because he was a great, great storyteller. So it's one of those ironic tragedies. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful writer. Just, just the best. You know, his politics are notorious and all over the place. I think it's mostly a lot of bluster, but that's just me. Anyway, love, love John Milius. I love what he had to say about writing the movie that you want to see. Um, I've heard that adage in on the, on the novel side. You know, if you go to the bookstore, you go to the library, you don't see the book you want to read, write it yourself. And then even if that person doesn't pick up the option, you are the first audience. So you have that to enjoy one way or the other. So you've now moved into the academic arena and you are a part of the teaching faculty at USC, School of Cinematic Arts. What kind of advice uh, would you give your students who are interested in pursuing screenwriting um, or filmmaking uh, as a career? We've gotten a couple of great tidbits from Milius already, but what, what are a couple more things that you, you impart to your students? Well, the most important thing is perseverance and to keep going. Lately, I've been working with different partners on different scripts. So in my career right now, I, yes, I have a full-time job. I'm the chair of the Interactive Media and Games. I'm the director of USC Games at USC. I'm part of the film school. I'm part of the screenwriting department. Haven't taught screenwriting in a few years because I've been running games lately. But that's only half of what I do. The other half, I'm writing. I'm screenwriting. I have a script that's out to directors with a producer right now. I have another script that just went all over town. And I'm writing two more. So I'm a full-time screenwriting right now. Full-time. Like, harder than ever like i think i'm more productive than even when paul was alive because i'm just well experienced too so um yeah one just went out this weekend one is with you know, you know i have a producing partner named lloyd levin who was on five bloods and rocketeer and i've been with him forever and we have a script called road till dawn that's out with producer george tillman is our partner on that it's out to directors it's a story about in 1969s texas it's based on a true story of these only black guys who had a muscle car and were street racing. And my partners I wrote it with, it's about their dad and uncle. It's kind of like American graffiti. It's really awesome. And um, the other one is more of a, is a World War II submarine meets 20,000 leagues under the sea um, with, with a um, strong anti-war, is it a monster or is it the war thing going? That's the one that just went out and I'm finishing up a, fantasy comedy that Paul and I have worked on for years and I keep rewriting it. I got some new partners on this. It's called Manhattan Fairy Tale, and it's kind of a crazy midsummer night's dream but now we have it. It's a biracial couple and it's pretty interesting and then my next one is I have um, black partners on this also is a political comedy very Runyon-esque if you know what that means in South Side Chicago contemporary. It's very funny but very it's wild politics. Anyway, doing all kinds of stuff. And then after that, I'm going to get to something about the game business because I spent a lot of time there and I'm going to write something about the origins of the game business that's going to be kind of a comedy. So I'm really at it, you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm writing full time 
right now and teaching and COVID made all this possible because I don't have to spend two and a half hours driving to USC and back every day. So that's two and a half hours I can write. And also the other reason is, you know, the, the five bloods was our comeback movie and doing everything I can to come back to be frank. So I'm not retired to teaching. I just do that too. So you mentioned Paul um, and your relationship lasted a long time. You guys had some great material that you produced, obviously the original screenplay for the five bloods. Uh, my personal favorite, if for no other reason, the number of times that I've watched it, the rocketeer. So can you tell us a little bit about how your partnerships work from a screenwriting perspective? Uh, obviously you complimented each other so wonderfully, but what did each of you bring to the table? He brought the prose and I brought the story and he brought the comics and I brought history. And then the process, I'll tell you this, this is interesting and interesting for other writers. The process, we started out as like a grind. I mean, we had, we would argue over every line. I mean, it was like, we ultimately, we had a, two computers in the old days in the nineties with one, with two screen, one, I'm sorry, one computer with two screens. So he would type and I would be, have a screen, he'd have a screen. And literally to be like this, no, no, not this, say that. No, no, not, and, and it was just like, I don't know how we did it, but we did the whole Flash series that way. We did the rock. We did that for 20 years, 30 years. I don't know. At some point, once we were in the game business and I was an exec and he was writing, we got more spread out, but we would still write in hotel rooms all over the world when we were doing game stuff. But at some point after THQ, he moved out to Palm Desert for a couple of years. And we started writing online. And it was like, you take this scene and I'll take that scene. It was the most liberating thing that ever happened. I mean, we got so fast. The Five Bloods was written in three weeks. I mean, it was like, bam. And it was just, you do that scene, I do that scene. And we, were, we worked seven days a week because we were really into it. And that's how I write everything now. I write everything fast. And I also learned at USC from a great screenwriting professor named Jack Epps, who also happened to write Top Gun, a technique that in the last few years, after writing for 40 or 35, only in the last three have I been really wild. No, maybe a little longer, but he just said, don't write it good, just write. Like just write a draft and rewrite, write a draft and rewrite, which is very much like game development. So I'm doing that and I'm working, I was working with a new partner recently, a guy named Christian Canamace, who also happened to come from games and was the lead writer and designer on Red Dead Redemption. And anyway, Christian was like, Oh, well, I got to get this figured out. I said, no, you don't just put something down and then we'll rewrite it. And at the end of it, he was very stressed. I think at the end of it, it was like, wow, this is amazing. We wrote this really fast and it's really good. So that technique, I swear by now, just write and rewrite, write and rewrite, right? Just don't worry about it. Just throw something down. And that every day I make sure I write at least a scene before I'm done. Has, has the, the advent of word processors and, and, things like that made it a lot easier for to, to have that style. Are you kidding? So I can appreciate because I went from analog to digital, both in film and in everything. Right. And I'm a big video gamer. So I was always on the edge of technology. Paul and I always had the latest computer that we could play a game on even in the eighties. Right. So we were writing on an Atari 800 and stuff like that. Anything we could, anything we could play games on. I mean, huge. We were, Paul was a huge game. I'm a huge, huge, um, gamer. So we used to cut and paste. You ever heard of that? Where literally you print it out, you cut, 
and then you glue the shit in the tape, the stuff in the script. I can't even imagine that. So <laughs> I think this process I'm talking about that I've adapted lately is made possible by word processing because it would be so choked, you know, white out and slow. Oh my God. I think I could only do it on a pad and paper with an erase. It still would be a mess. So I think it's, I don't know if younger people take it for granted. They probably do. But to me, it is a great, the great liberator because I know what it was like to have to deal with a correction. It was a pain in the ass. Yeah. I remember in, I mean, even in college doing term papers when you had to put footnotes and you had to measure the bottom of the, you know, the typing paper and yeah. And all of that and yeah. all of that's, you know, <laughs> so can you, uh, this is what curiosity I had. So can you remember like a specific line in a film that you wrote versus something Paul contributed? Do you have that kind of, Oh, sure. I can give you a couple. So, one of the lines people really like in The Rocketeer is I may be crooked, but I'm 100% American. One of my favorites. <laughs> I wrote that line. Okay. <laughs> and it was a take. It was a takeoff on what Marlon Brando says in Streetcar Named Desire, because we did that play in college at Cal State San Bernardino. And Paul and I were both in it playing a couple of the card players. And I remember Stanley Kowalski at one point says something like, I may not be something, but I'm 100% American. And, and that's where I stole it from that. The other one... I can give you a Paul line. Real quick, who wrote the who wrote the hood ornament line? Arkin's line. You look like a hood oh, ornament. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's another of my favorites. I know neither of us wrote Big Gopher. That wasn't us. That was Jim Kauf who did a rewrite, and I remember that's what was left from the rewrite. I don't know who did the hood ornament. I don't remember. <laughs> it might not have been Paul or I. It might have been on the set. I'm not sure. Sure. It might have been. It, I don't remember. Sorry. It could have been Bill Deere. You know, we did a draft with Bill Deere, too, in there. So. I was going to ask who wrote um, The Rock of Who. Oh, I did. Or we did. Paul and I. I don't know. It was one of us. <laughs> or it was in the comic. Was it in the comic? You know, Paul and I wrote the second set of comics with Dave Stevens also. And, and he credited us in a really weird way. It's like you have to read the dedication and he says, like, thanks to Mike Kaluta and Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. We wrote that fucking thing. Like, all six <laughs> episodes with Dave, we wrote that whole Cliff Goes to New York thing. But that's okay. And then he was going to give us a one of the pages, and we never got that either. But it's okay. We love Dave Stevens. And he gave us a free option on The Rocketeer originally because we didn't have any money. Because he liked Zone Troopers, our first movie. He just, you know, because he knew we got the same stuff. And we were kindred spirits. And... I mean, you guys, I work with a lot of ghosts. You know, it's hard. All my friends died and it's, I'm not that old. So we're talking Dave, I get a little choked. We're talking Dave and Paul, you know, they're dead. So it's hard. Yeah. Especially when you have relationships like you had with them. Yeah. Uh, how, how soon after meeting Paul, did you guys know that there was something special there? You said you met the first day, but then you guys would scrap over different lines and, 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 you know, and argue. And we hooked up over our love for movies. Yeah and old movies. And we did, uh, I think the first play we did together was William Gillette's Sherlock Holmes in, in the summer of 76. So that got us into the Sherlock Holmes thing. I mean, I love the Basil Rathbone movies. Like Paul and I are both old movie guys, right? I mean, you can even see what's on my wall in my the posters behind me. Those are my posters. I mean, it's not. So we connected on the movies, 100%. And that was it. We just wanted to make movies and tell stories. When you guys obviously took that love for classic Hollywood and classic film into The Rocketeer, and uh, one of my favorite aspects of the film is the setting 
and, and the the ability to go back through film and experience those time periods that you haven't lived through is is just magic. Is there a process that you employ um, when writing about a specific time period, whether it's 1930s California or uh, the Vietnam War era? Yeah. Yes, the internet makes it so easy. It's insane, right? In the old days, we go to the library, right? And spend the day digging through stuff and trying to find stuff. The internet's just amazing. I actually tend to put together um, photo collage stuff in decks in case they wind up needing a deck later. And maybe they don't do anything with it. Like Road Till Dawn, I have a whole deck of pictures from the late 60s in East Texas and Jim Crow stuff and muscle cars. You know, I have this whole thing. The Five Bloods, every location was a real place. So there was a deck that said, you know, Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse Now Club's a real place in Saigon. That's not a set that they built. That We wrote that in there because I just went on the internet. We didn't go there. And I was really able to do a lot of research. That was the one a lot on Vietnam and Cambodia. And it got a little compressed in the movie. It was more specifically laid out in the original. Like they were in Cambodia. Where and, and and crossing the border, all those were beats and going up the river, but a lot of that stuff got massaged out and it doesn't matter. You know, they didn't didn't matter. It was just it just was every town, every place was a real place in 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 the bloods. So we spoke with um, you know, another I mean just a ton of Rocketeer fans uh everywhere. And we it was a film critic from the UK, Matthew Turner, we had on our show a few episodes back and he wanted to know, we asked him if there's anything we could ask you because you were coming on the show. And he said, ask him if there's anything different plot wise that you originally had, maybe a different ending or a different, you know, kind of turn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the ending, there's an ending that I loved where it was our guys and the gangsters on the ground. It took place in the desert. This is before we went to the observatory and the cars versus Cliff and everybody from the airfield, like all the flyers. So the flyers are in the air, the gangsters are on the ground, and the Nazis are coming in the blimp. And that's all written. There's pages. I've got a draft of that somewhere. And that got take scaled down. And it got scaled down to what you saw at the observatory. But that was a running battle with lots of planes and lots of cars. And I remember that. I could tell there's lots of... We did a lot of drafts on that thing. We wrote it for six years. And we did Bill Deere drafts. We did Joe Johnson drafts. At one point... Jim Kauf did a draft, and I remember he wrote the big gopher joke, but I don't remember anything else from his draft staying in the movie. And then Frank Darabont did a draft, and I don't remember what was his and what wasn't. I remember some stuff that was Bill Deere's. I mean, that whole, the lines between the, um, the act, acting isn't acting unless you're acting like acting or whatever that is, that was Bill Deere's. So it was a, mostly Paul and I and Dave Stevens, but, you know, it was a lot of collaboration. What happened was... After Darabont did his rewrite, they brought Paul and I back. And that didn't usually happen back then where the original writers were brought back. And then we were doing the production rewrites such as they were throughout it. And it wasn't a ton because we were doing the flash at the same time. And we couldn't be on the set. So we, but I, we spent one long night on that set arguing with Paul Servino and Timothy Dalton about whose scene it was in Eddie's office. And it was actually neither of their scenes. You know, it was like, and it was driving us insane, but we had to keep rewriting it. And these actors were arguing. It was one of the weirder experiences in my career because it wasn't about the story. It was about who's more powerful in the scene. I'm like, that's not what it's about. Because <laughs> I remember this, Paul Servino said, if he came into my office, I'd shoot him. And I'm like, 
if you shoot him, we don't have a scene. You know, it's like he'd come off Goodfellas or something. And DeMeo and I are going, I don't know what's going on here. And I remember driving back. It was an all-nighter. They were at Disney and we were at Warner Brothers, which is very close by. And we were driving back to our office at Warner Brothers. And we were up writing all night. And 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 then the next morning, well, what are they? Uh, Paul Servino thinks it's too much Dalton singing. Dalton thinks it's just like, that's the only time that's ever happened in my career. And it was weird. That's going to be challenging. Those strong personalities. You've got a former Bond and you've got uh, one of the mainstay actors in every gangster movie that's ever been made. So, But it wasn't my problem. It was Joe's right. problem. It was really it was Joe's problem. We were just brought in to do our thing and get out. He's the one who lived with that every day. And I've never talked to him about it. I don't know how it was. But he's a wonderful guy and probably a great interview if you only get a hold of him. <laughs> So story, uh, the story needs to remain central. And uh, you've worked on films, video games, consulted on uh, theme park design. Now, by the time the final product is presented, like we're talking about The Rocketeer, uh, as a film, it's touched by composers, designers, uh, editors, obviously actors <laughs> that have opinions. Do you like to be involved in the process? Uh, or, and how long do you like to stay involved in the process? As a writer? Yeah, to make sure that your vision is 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 seen out. Is there a point you like to walk away and hand off the reins? Right away. Right away. If I'm not directing it and I'm not or producing it, see you later. It's like I don't want to look back. I don't want to have anything to do with it because it's not mine anymore and it's theirs and they're going to go do their thing and I don't want to get into it. It's like mm-hmm. – Go with God. God bless. Um, if I'm not producing, if you want me to produce, it's like I've never even tried that because I'm kind of controlling and I'm a director. So it's like Milius taught us. Here's another thing. He said, the only reason I ever directed is to protect the material. Hmm. And I think that's how I, I wanted to be a director, but it was kind of like I did have that attitude from him. Like, And I did have some pilots, somebody else. That's what happened. Somebody directed a pilot of ours and it was like, oh, I could have done better. And then I started directing our pilots after that um what was the question i got lost oh just at what point do you like to hand off the reins uh oh yeah so personally and paul was not the same as me he could go and hang out and visit it's like i don't want to see it just take invite me to the premiere like because i'll be too i'll start grinding over every little thing that's not how i saw it right and that's not good for anybody me or them yeah i think it was rick riordan um author of the percy jackson series who talked about the films they made like watching his life's work go through a meat shredder. Yeah. And well, I don't feel that way. But but I, I think don't. there's yeah, I think there's a different there's there's probably different uh, you know amounts of wanting that control. So now he's working with Disney and they're going to do a whole series and and all of that, but I think probably each person may be a little bit different um in that. Yeah, but- it depends. You know, it's like I stopped wanting to direct a long time ago. I don't know, I just kind of lost I don't know. I don't want to to get up that early. I don't want to work that hard. I really like writing now at this time in my life. I like, that's what I wanted. If I could do anything, I would just write. I mean, don't listen USC, but I wouldn't even be teaching. I would just be, (laughs) I would just be writing. If I could just do it like the old days when Paul and I could make a lot of money just writing. And hopefully I have a lot of scripts out now. I'm really, really trying hard because that's what I really enjoy. Really. That's what I enjoy the most right now. It's just doing my own thing at the, at the word processor. So Matt mentioned in the last question about the cons- consultation on theme park design. So you were involved with Disney on uh, Galaxy's Edge and a few other uh, projects. First of all, how did you get um, involved in those projects and how did you contribute? What, what did you do for them? They're all big Rocketeer fans. That's how I got a chance to do anything, to be honest. <laughs> and they're Disney. So, you know, people in their 30s and 40s tend to really like that movie. So I first did a talk like for Imagineering. Now I'm a big 
ridiculous Disneyland fans. So, I mean, stupid, right? I mean, I have like vacation club. I go all the time. I get, it's like my thing. So I always wanted to be in Imagineering. It's my always. By the time I got there, I think I was too old to do anything but consult. But I did a talk and then I hooked up with the guys who were doing the um, experimenting in immersive narrative storytelling in the park with actors and guests. It's really interesting stuff. It's sort of where games, you know, it's like LARPing games meet. And these guys were like this little team in R and D that had been doing ex designs and experiments. They're fantastically dedicated and brilliant to this. One of them got promoted to VP of star Wars while we were right where we were about to work on this project. We were testing the narrative in a thing called legends of Frontierland. So Legend of Frontierland was a test for Star Wars land that I got to participate in for about a month in the summer where I got to go to Frontierland every day and work with four other people running a game and adding narrative and the best job I've ever had in my life. My favorite <laughs> job. It didn't, I don't even remember what it paid, not much, but I remember standing with one of the guys I was working with, another designer on, uh, who's not there anymore, on the, the ship not the Mark Twain, you know, the Columbia, which is parked in Frontierland. And we're looking at our Frontierland and I go, and I said, it's a life goal for me, working at Disneyland. And uh, it was a blast. And if there's, and I, hopefully in the future, we'll be doing some work on R&D with our students and some of that stuff. We were going to, and then COVID, because that's all interpersonal and, and it'll play out, I think, in the hotel, which I'm really looking forward to. A lot of that storytelling stuff. So, I uh, love that. Um, was just so much fun. And Asa Kalama and Corey Rouse are the two guys I was talking about. They're just amazing human beings with a vision. And you'll see it. I think it's going to come on. It's theme parks get more and more storytelling and interesting. I think um, that vision is going to come more and more to life. Well, that's the idea. I mean, Disney's got the uh, the Star Wars Hotel opening in Florida. Right. You know, all these things are so immersive and interactive. You mentioned the Imagineering thing, and that's always the, I, I'm, you know, for me personally, it's, you know, it's, it's a goal as well. Thankfully, though, I think in my role in information security over the last year, uh, there's been a little more job security. So I'm happy with that. <laughs> but I figure my retirement plan is to move down to the parks and be one of those guys that cleans up garbage even and just, you know, just to be there. Dude, I, you know, I'm the same way. <laughs> it's, it's blast. So where are, your, where are your vacation club points? Ours are in the Polynesian and Florida. Oh, ours are at the Animal Kingdom. At the, at the, oh. at the what's it called? The Kidani Lodge or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> nice, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've had it for like 12, 11 years now. <laughs> Yeah, a total fan. I mean, just I have no I have no shame about my fandom. I'm a Star Wars fan. I mean, I make stuff that people are fans of too, but I'm a total fanboy. Look, Mark Hamill, my friend, he's a fan too. It's like it's like he's you know, it's like a lot of us are pop culture nutheads. Yeah, you gotta love what you do. You know, if you can be involved in what it is you love, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I've been lucky that way. Well, we're lucky enough to be spending some time with Danny Bilson, and coming up in our next segment, Danny's going to share some experiences writing and collaborating with Spike Lee on their new movie, Five Bloods, available now on Netflix, and a strong contender for an Oscar this season. So stick with us. We'll be right back on Heilman and Haver. And welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Today is February 26th. On this day in 1916, 
Charlie Chaplin, not yet 27 years old and just two years after appearing in his first motion picture, signed a contract with Mutual Film Company, making him the highest paid filmmaker in America at $670,000 for a single year's work to make 12 two-reel comedies for the Mutual Film Corporation. For Mutual, Chaplin produced many of the film, uh, films historians believe to be his best, uh, including Easy Street, 1AM, and The Rink. Chaplin said of his relationship with Mutual, Fulfilling my contract with Mutual was, I suppose, the happiest period of my life. And on this day in 1989, Jerome Robbins' Broadway opened at the Imperial Theater in New York City, going on to play 55 previews and 634 performances before heading on the road in late 1990. The musical's numbers were selected from many of the Broadway productions Robbins conceived of, choreographed, or directed, including On the Town, The King and I, West Side Story, Fiddler on the Roof, and A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Jason Alexander, a.k.a. George Costanza from Seinfeld, starred in the show and won the 1989 Tony for Best Actor in a Musical. And born today in Burlington, Iowa in 1893, William Frawley, best known as lovable curmudgeon Fred Mertz in I Love Lucy, and his uncle Charlie on My Three Sons. Playing opposite Vivian Vance, 22 years his junior, Frawley was nominated for five consecutive Emmy nominations for Best Supporting Actor for I Love Lucy, but incredibly never won. Vance and Frawley never saw eye to eye, but Desi Arnaz and Frawley remained friends until Frawley's death in 1966, when Arnaz took out a full-page ad in all the trade papers with the words, Buenos noches, amigo. Our guest today is no stranger to classic television, growing up with a father responsible for many of the TV classics we love today, including The Annie Griffith Show, Get Smart, and M.A.S.H. Danny Bilson has written for film, video games, TV, and comic books, and with his late writing partner Paul DeMeo, recently returned to the big screen, partnering with none other than Spike Lee on Lee's latest Oscar contender, The Five Bloods. Uh, the Five Bloods is the experience of Black veterans in the Vietnam War and after, but the original pitch that you and Paul wrote was different. Can you tell us a little bit about the original treatment and what was the inspiration for that? Sure. And it was, it was a script. It was, it was a full script. The inspiration came from, the first place it came from were our college classmates at Cal State San Bernardino. We went to school from 74 to 78, and there were three bases out there. So our dorms were full of vets. Our theater plays, we had a 55-year-old Air or 50-year-old Air Force veteran playing the old guy. You know, we had a lot of vets. And sitting around the dorms, we'd hear about the war. And I also grew up with it, right? So I was the last. Paul actually had numbers called because he's three years older than me. I was the last year to register for the draft. So the war was a big influence in part of our lives. And then because of that, had a really powerful relationship to the movie Apocalypse Now, believe it or not. I saw it like six times. I saw the early version that Coppola did at a screening in Westwood. I was just like a year before. I was just, I guess I always wanted to write a Vietnam movie. That's what it was. And so it started out, I think, gosh, I can't remember what the original concept, I can't remember how much was young guys and old guys when we first thought of it, but it doesn't really matter much because there was a treatment and there was a script and we made some changes, but basically it's the same characters and the same story. That's why we have first position credit on it. And Kevin and Spike will say the same thing. I mean, Kevin just says, we just blackified it. Well, they did more than that, to be honest. And Spike doesn't like us talking about who did what too much, but they will, I will say that, you know, the character of Paul with the MAGA hat, he was a right wing dick the whole time, you know, in the old script, he was white, 
But Melvin was always black. And there was shit between him and Melvin because he was a racist, right? And then the other characters were basically the same guys. What happened was it was four white guys and a black guy when we wrote it originally. And the story of it, you know, Oliver Stone was the first place we stopped and optioned it. We worked with him for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half. And it became a little more Treasure of Sierra Madre-like through that. Our original ending was different. And then it became more like it is now with Oliver, which was a little more, which was the, I mean, I remember Paul and I going, all right, we really going to write this Bogart thing where he's talking into the camera. Because that's in Treasure of Sierra Madre. He's going, you know, I can't remember what the lines are. I used to, I used to be able to do it, but you know, I remember sitting down to write that part going, all right, if that's what he wants, we'll do it. And then Spike took it one step further within the camera and all that stuff. And Delroy, of course, crushes it. But let me say this. So what we heard was after Oliver Stone decided he didn't want to make the movie, um, the next thing we heard was Spike Lee was interested in it. He had read a book called Bloods, which was these letters from black GIs. And he wanted to make it all black. And we were like, well, that's cool. We just thought that's a good idea. You know, it'll maybe it'll be even better because what the movie was about in our draft, I will say the movie is still about. It was about veterans of a generation that should be retired, not walking around the jungles in Vietnam or Cambodia looking for gold because we don't take care of our vets and the whole thing's fucked. And those themes persist. Then you add on the layer of the black soldier, which reinvented the movie. I'm not going to say it didn't. Right. It reinvented the movie and gave it a power. And we didn't write that stuff with Chadwick Boseman talking about black power. All the black power stuff, of course we didn't write that, right? I, I mean, Spike says, don't talk about what we wrote or didn't write. But come on, right? Um, we don't get outside our lane. And I, I really, I've said this to Spike and Kevin. Um, I really felt they elevated the material. I think they made it better. And I think it was our best script. So this was not, you know, some, I mean, I read reviews, whoa, from the guys who wrote The Rocketeer. Well, you know, they imagined it was some cartoony adventure. It wasn't. It was called The Last Tour, right? And then Spike said, too many movies at last. And I think Five Blood's a great title. But it was a great script. I mean, it was a deep, you know, it, it, it was, it, they just added a massive layer to it. And then Spike did the wonderful thing of cutting into documentary stuff. And Marvin Gaye, that's all Spike. Here's, a, here's, a, here's how it was in our script. When they go into the jungle, they put on their backpacks and they go into the jungle and they're singing um, Country Joe and the Fish. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me. I don't give a damn. You know that song, right? Next stop is Vietnam. Yep. So oh, yeah. that song is replaced with the Marvin Gaye song. But the song, they still sang a song when they went in the woods. You see what I, it's kind of like that. The movie's kind of like that, except they elevated it spiritually. I'm not going to say they didn't. They elevated it spiritually with that Chadwick Boseman stuff and they made the movie better. I think they made a great movie better. Like it wasn't a weak script. It was our best script. So, you know, and I don't think Spike would have jumped on it if it wasn't a great script. It wasn't a cartoon and it wasn't all white. It really wasn't. And it did have racial themes in it. There's some things were different, but um, not that, not substantially. The third act was different in some ways, because, but it's still the same. You know, it all ends the same. I mean, no, it doesn't. Sorry. Spike put the Black Lives Matter stuff and the gold going back in the original one. Um, it was much more like a 70s movie. Let's just put it that way. But I'm happy with it. 
I, I, I love Spike. He's the greatest. Kevin's a, a, a one. These guys are just, they've been so nice to me and Paul. And I think they could have just ignored us. Honestly, in the world of Hollywood, they could have just, you know, we got the crow, get the credit from the guild, but they didn't have to have me in all the interviews, you know, and do all the press with him and Kevin, but they really love the script. And Spike's a very, he's a grown up. And he's like, he said, look, this movie wouldn't exist without you, Paul, the father son story, the gold, I mean, everything. So that's the journey. And what's made it so great in the release and the award stuff and all that is Spike. I mean, he's been nothing but a good friend and just gracious and just made Paul and I, well, me and Paul's widow feel great. The two things that I always know going into a Spike Lee movie is there's going to be humanity and it's going to be thought provoking. And I mean, you're just proving the fact of that, that human aspect of, of Spike Lee is, well, is incredible. I mean, my take is he's all heart, you know, and he just puts it on the screen it's all heart. It's just, it's just love all over the place. And you can quibble with this or that, but you can't quibble with just the, it's a Spike Lee joint. That's what I said. You know, after I saw it the first time, <laughs> I said, look, it's a Spike Lee joint and it's a good one. And I think it's considered one of, one of his better ones of his 30 or 40 films. I think it's up there. I hope. I think it is for sure. I hope it is. How long ago did uh, did Spike become aware of the project? Do you, and and when when you originally wrote it, do you think that had it been made in its in its form as written originally, do you think it would have been as powerful, or was it waiting for someone like Spike and not only some with his passion and the love he put into it, but also the time? I mean, this is a this is an opportune time with the politics uh, that we've seen over the past year and the challenges uh, with racial relations uh, for a story like this, perhaps. No, you can't compare it. I think that bringing the black perspective and being a movie that takes on the entire history of the black soldier, that has a lot more value than what we wrote. And I think what we wrote had a ton of value because we were honored. All the vets were in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And all the Vietnam vets and the whole baby boomer generation, we're all in there. All that stuff that's in there was in there. But no, he plussed it up huge. Right? I mean, no, you know, it's like I told you the story of Millie has said we direct to protect our material. And I think I told Spike this once. And this was a case where I they made it better. They elevated the material. They elevated the material in a spiritual way, frankly. And then there's weird stuff like not mystical, but, you know, Paul and Chadwick both dying. I mean, it, it, it's there's something about it. Yeah, and and Chadwick, uh, I mentioned because I wrote a little review about about the film, and I remember commenting about how Chadwick, who had less screen time than the other principal characters, just owned the. Well, it's set up that way, right? It's like yeah, you know, for it's sure. like Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse. Now you talk about him, you you love him, and then he has these moments, and Spike stage him in a godlike way too i think i he didn't say that yeah That's but i think it's both i think it's both chadwick and what spike oh, did sure. to purposely yeah look uh if you look at the performance in this and the performance in ma rainey the two performances he went out on wow i mean those are great performances just fabulous just killer right well so war is war's messy messy business uh, which obviously you've you've captured in the film 
uh, capture. And there are countless other films out there that uh, try to bring us to to ground level. I mean, in fact, we did an episode a few weeks back where we talked about MASH and we pointed out Alan Alda um, had made sure that it was at least one scene in every episode that was a surgery scene, right? Mm-hmm. So that brought that realism. When you're writing a war film, is there how do you strike the balance between making sure we understand how messy war is, but also make it entertaining? I just wrote another one. So dealing with these themes exactly, the submarine movie. Um, it was based on actually a black kid who was 15 who drowned in the Tang, trying to escape the Tang in World War II. So I, I'll give you this. The, the partner said, I want to write a monster movie on a sub. I said, I don't care about the monster. You know, I care about the war and I care about what's going on with these guys in that tin can, not tin can, that submarine underground for two years, you know, in those life and death situation. What are their heads like at the last week of the war? So the monster's the war. So I have, I'm a history person and I've read a lot of books, especially World War II stuff, Korean War. I have great empathy for the that horrific experience. So I don't ever, ever, ever glorify it, ever. That doesn't mean you can't have exciting shit, right? Because as Milius said in our class, I can't believe how much I'm quoting that in this, 40 years ago, <laughs> war is the most intense human experience. He said, I, you know, I had asthma. They wouldn't let me go to Vietnam. I wanted to go. Um, that's, I don't want to go into any war because I studied it. I know just how it's hell. It's the devil on earth. So not about glorifying it, not about exploiting violence for joy in any way. The, this movie was an anti-war movie. This new one, Devilfish, that's an anti-war movie, even though it's a science fiction kind of Twilight Zone thing. I don't go near war without the cost. Never. Never. Um, when I was a kid, maybe, you know, Combat was my favorite TV show. But that had the cost, too. I think combat was so great in the 60s because it was closer to real, certainly for TV. I grew up with a grandfather who was in World War II and, and uh, the South Pacific and would not would not talk about anything but the funny but the funny moments. And I always wondered why until I found out from another close family member and his, his role, and it was messy, messy business, and I, I respected that about him. Do you have – we're losing our World War II uh, vets and, and now even Korea and Vietnam daily – uh, dozens, hundreds. Mm-hmm. Do you have people still in your life that you go to uh, for stories to talk with about their experiences? You spoke about the the men that you were in school with. Is there anybody still currently that you... Documentaries. I use documentaries. Hmm. Um, I know I... What movie was I writing? I don't know. Was I rewriting this? Maybe I was doing a rewrite of this. I definitely watched Ken Burns' Vietnam when I was somewhere around this. And on the, I watched a lot of documentary civil rights stuff and really interesting stuff when I was writing Road Till Dawn about the, the teenagers in the South. When we wrote, okay, so as I told, this is an interesting anecdote. The Five Bloods is not Bilson and DeMeo's first script about black Vietnam veterans. It is our second. We wrote a script called The Death Masters in 1982 with Richard Pryor. And it was rich. It's a, I saw, I sent Spike the, we're doing it. I said, you got to see this, man. I sent him a script cover. It's a story by Richard Pryor, by by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. And it was a war. It was about, Richard wanted to do a movie about a bunch of guys coming back from Vietnam who had almost like Mila Massacre kind of stuff and who 
go to South America and rescue a bunch of kids on a mission to sort of atone. And we wrote that back then. And it was, and he said, I want to write it for all, for all these guys in the movie. It was Jim Kelly, Fred Williamson. It was all the big like black exploitation action guys. But then he would call us up and he'd go, oh yeah, can you write something for Sugar Ray Liner? Okay. And what about Chris Christopherson? I want to get him in there. Okay. And so we wrote this script. It's 160 pages. It's a great script. It's a great script. Like, but it's an epic war movie. That was our first one, I think. But we never, you know, we always treat war with consequence. It's like, and now everything I write, I don't even want to write anything. It doesn't say something. You know, I don't think it's maybe it's an old age thing. I don't know. Yeah, I feel the same way about things that I want to see. I don't I, I time is I, and maybe it is as you get older, there's less time left. So the, the time you have is important. You want it to mean something. Well, for me, yeah, especially I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I'm not you know, I, all my stuff's commercial, like the five bloods is a movie movie. And some of my friends said one of the things they liked about it. So I'll you know, that's Danny and Paul. So the movie movie-ness of Five Bloods is definitely us because we did the story and the structure and this treasure Sarah Madre stuff and the gold and the adventure and the bad. And I think that that hanging a Spike Lee joint on that is cool. And he knows it too because he's a huge movie nut, Spike. I think Kevin said, yeah, when, when Ke- he flew Kevin in New York and they first started talking about the rewrite, first thing they did was watch Treasure Sierra Madre. We didn't write watch Treasure Sierra Madre when we wrote it. It was Oliver. We knew jungle gold you know we knew the movie but it wasn't it was oliver pushed us a little more towards closer to it it was a specific note i want it more like treasure sierra madre and then we felt that the third act was better that way okay in our very first version it was more like apocalypse now and the storm and norman character is actually still alive the surprise at the end living up the rivers and he was running a bunch of bandits and he turns out he's the bad guy he was the bad guy in the end. Like he had stayed behind. They had left him behind in Vietnam. And that went out with Oliver. That, And then we went to kind of the way it is now. Well, the film's been front and center in uh, many awards discussions, including the Oscars, uh, potential best film, potential best director. How does it feel to have something in the spotlight like this? What, eight, eight years or so after your original cut? Yeah, well, our last draft was five years ago, I think. Six, the one that Spike got was 2016. How does it feel? Um, it's all about Paul. Hmm. It's like, I told his wife, she was like, oh, we didn't get done. I said, I said, Lauren, I said, Paul's last wish was one more credit. And we did better than that. So whatever else happens, happens. I think we've been nominated for one award, the AARP movies for old people by old people <laughs> by old things. and as i said i'll get my walker if we had a live award show i'd get my polish my walker up but no honestly it's screenplay hasn't been nominated that's the only thing we've been nominated for the movie's been nominated for some stuff um he didn't say what credit he just said credit i want one more credit i remember i said i want a career to keep going and it was we knew what we were talking about at that time but he did and he did and it's on billboards and posters and his name's everywhere, and he's his family, his daughters can see it. And well, that's great. Well, well, it's an awesome film. We watched it last weekend, um, and it's it's just wonderful. Thankfully, we were able to watch it in the theater. Theaters are starting to open again. It's amazing how much we missed that. But yeah, congratulations on that, and, and best of luck on the the continuing award season. It's not over yet, and uh, all the new projects you have uh, you have going on. No, I, you know, it's like 
if writers are listening to this by my example of what I'm doing right now is I'm writing and it's all about, you know, I put out a script last weekend and my partner was, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I want, I can't wait to see what happens. And I was like, I'm not thinking about it because I'm too busy on the next one. And that's how you stay sane. You just don't just keep going. You increase your amount of lottery tickets and you don't get too precious about one because, you know, there's going to be all kinds of nonsense that happens along the way. And that probably all plays into my answer about just turn the script over and go the other way. So, so we've talked about and returned to as a topic on our show frequently is that this time in quarantine has brought out the best in a lot of people. And we're excited to see the work that has been produced during this otherwise downtime. Uh, this podcast was born during quarantine, um, and it's uh, it's been so fulfilling. And and we can identify so much with the the enjoyment of having a strong partnership and producing something of value that people enjoy. And it's been really insp- inspiring to hear your about your friendship and relationship with Paul. Yeah, I think that you know, Paul. It was all about the Rocketeer and the Flash in a way. And people love Viper or the Sentinel too. But, you know, those were the ones that seemed to endure our original Flash and and the Rocketeer. And both are more successful than we made them now, right? So that's kind of where we were. And, you know, we were trying to make a comeback with this script when we got it. Because I would spend a lot of time in the game business where I didn't have enough time to write. And we did, we wrote during that time. We wrote scripts and sold them. But still, I was doing a lot of game work. And the whole point is, all I do is teach and write and do meetings and seven days a week i'm just really into writing right now and maybe it's because of this right it's like a place i can escape from uh but i have one big privilege you guys i'll turn my camera around i said it before you say you have been a movie theater i've been living in a movie theater by myself for covid so i screen shit all the time here i'm going to turn my camera around so you can see this okay i'm panning around okay that's the side you see some seats there's my little stupid light let me get back oh nice Wait, wait, I'm not doing this right. Here we go. So you see there's like a curtain down there. Oh, yeah. And I got a big-ass screen. There's a big projector. I've got 7.1 sound. And I have no friends. <laughs> um, the Five Bloods, yeah, I got to screen it by myself. You know, well, I have a, I have a wife and two daughters. They don't really care about <laughs> the movie. <laughs> they really don't. And so... Uh, I've got this weird habit every morning. I can't sleep. I wake up at five in the morning and I come down here and watch something before my day starts. I'm actually pounding my way through The Expanse, that TV show. Well, if you need company, we'll be happy to Skype with you again. You can aim the camera, turn it around, and we'll, we'll watch with you. Yeah, we can watch movies. <laughs> you know what I screened the other day, which just was wonderful, was uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, the Capra movie with Gary Cooper. The greatest thing about having a theater is old movies. You know, you get to see them on the big screen and these beautiful prints, you know, from the Blu-ray restored. And I just, look, I'm an old movie guy. So I just just love that stuff. It's a blast. It must be really satisfying and not to not to age you too much, but there's kids. And now, I mean, I'm in my 40s now, nearly. They're thinking of your films the same way that you think of Capra's. Isn't that, is, I mean, that's got to be a pretty... I know, isn't it weird? I don't, I never thought about that. Because I don't think I've made anything that good. But but I know I made some stuff that people really love, like the original Flash and the Rocketeer and Viper. Strangely enough, I mean, we never thought we were making it, but that show is beloved by all those boys who were 10 yeah. in 1993. <laughs> you know, it's like 
I'll tell you, I don't know if you got a second. I did a thing a couple years ago for the bullet, the Ford bullet, you know, the car, the must. So they hired me as a film person to come up and talk about the, how the movie was made and all that stuff, bullet. And when I said who I was, when it was, and I did Viper, and it was Viper, there was like, I got a standing ovation because <laughs> this was like 25 automotive writers who were in their 40s. Well, they all, of course, if they're automotive nuts now, when they were 10, that right. show was a big influence. Like James Bond was a big thing. So I was like famous with these automotive writers for doing the Viper TV show. So anyway, um, but really the... Um, the ongoing love for the Rocketeer and the Flash and coming back with the Five Bloods for Paul and I is awesome. It's just the Five Blood is not my coda, okay? I am like, I am hard at it and I've got some great material and let's keep our fingers crossed and hope there's more from uh, my bank account needs it too. So, uh, well, we want to we get you back on and uh, talk about those future projects because it uh, sounds like some, there's ex- some exciting stuff in the in the hopper. Yeah, anytime, you guys. It was a lot of fun. You guys ask great questions, and you're very nice. Well, thank you to our guest, Danny Bilson. Uh, you can find out more about his work and upcoming projects on his website, dannybilson.com, and on Twitter at, at Danny Bilson. The Five Bloods is available on Netflix now, and our review of the film can be found on our Facebook page at, at Heilman and Haver. And join us next week, and we'll be joined by Tim Conway Jr., talk show host at KFI in Los Angeles, the number one news talk station in the country, and, as you might have guessed, eldest son of Tim Conway, legendary comedian and star of The Carol Burnett Show, McHale's Navy, and, who could forget, Dorf. Tim will share stories from his career in broadcasting and childhood growing up a Conway. And remember, Heilman and Haver can now be heard every week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And until we're trading the boards together again, thanks for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.